Welcome to Sunday School, our Sunday School Hour. Uh, this is going to be our third lesson in our Islam and Biblical Christianity study. Um, if you've been following along with us in our first lesson, uh, we looked at what Islam teaches and what uh, Muslims believe. In our second lesson, we looked at the five pillars of the, the actual practices of Muslim people. And then today, as promised, we're going to look at what Muslims believe about the Christian faith. <clears throat> and again, our goal is, is never to offend anyone in the Muslim community, but rather to provide biblical answers to what we'll see here this morning. Um, let's go ahead and pray as we begin, and we'll get started. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look into your word, but also to consider what we know about Islam. Lord, I pray that as we learn these things, again, they wouldn't just be facts that we store away in our minds, but rather they would be things that we could understand will help us to lead our Muslim friends and neighbors and co-workers to Christ. Lord, we pray that that very much would be the case and that you would receive the glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as we can... As we begin to consider what Muslims believe about the Christian faith, it's something that we need to understand is that Muslims do and are aware of the Bible. They're aware of Bible stories. It's not like the Bible is completely foreign to them. But one thing we need to be understand as we begin is that the Quran actually teaches things that are very much in, con in contradiction to what the Bible teaches. And so that's one thing that we first need to understand. For example, I'm going to give you a couple of different examples. For example, the Abraham, Abraham offered Ishmael rather than Isaac in order to justify Muhammad's prophethood as his coming descendant. Another example would be that Noah's wife perished with one of her sons during the flood. And again, these may seem like small things, but remember, everything in the Bible is there for a reason. Um, again, uh, another example, Pharaoh's wife, not daughter, was the one who adopted Moses. And perhaps one of the most interesting and most scary is that the Quran claims that all of Christ's disciples in the Bible were Muslims. The Quran teaches that. Now, of course, this does not mean that we should belittle Muslims because they have this misunderstanding. Rather, we should continue to endeavor in every possible way to give them the good news and the salvation of Christ. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. 2 Corinthians chapter number 10. One thing we're going to see in our next lesson, but I wanted to bring up now, is the fact that as we consider how we're going to talk with Muslims, we're never in it to, to win a fight. We're in it to win their soul to Jesus Christ. And we understand that the Bible teaches that our weapons are not carnal, but spiritual. And if you look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 10, beginning in verse 4, the Bible says, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And then verse number 5 is one that perhaps we even have memorized. The Bible says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God, and bringing to captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Again, our goal is not to win a, an argument. Our goal is to win a soul. 
And we'll see that in this lesson, we'll be studying again what Muslims believe about our core doctrines and how we, as biblical Christians, should respond to their assumptions. The first and perhaps the most important thing that we're going to be studying today is the topic of salvation. The topic of salvation. Now, we understand, as Bible-believing Christians, that the Bible gloriously reveals a free and undeserved salvation through the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And we could praise God for that this morning. Not only does he provide that, but this is a certain hope. This is a certain salvation that we see in the Bible. However, our concern this morning is that Muslims believe that Christians are wrong about the certainty of salvation. Now, why do I say that? Well, even Muhammad himself, their main prophet, has absolutely no certainty of salvation. In the Quran, one of their verses teaches, By Allah, though I am the apostle of Allah, let I will not know what Allah will do to me. And that's Muhammad speaking. Basically, what Muhammad's saying is that he has no idea what Allah is going to do to him in the afterlife. Even though he is the most respected and revered apostle and prophet, he himself had no idea what was going to happen to him in the afterlife. The sad truth is that Islam leaves the world unsaved and without hope. Allah's followers are left hopeless, completely uncertain about their fate on the day of judgment. Basically, to the Muslim person, salvation is summed up in one expression, and that is, if Allah wills. If Allah wants you to be saved, you will be, and if he doesn't, you won't. We saw that in our first lesson. Now, again, one of the sad truths is that Allah is not a covenant-keeping God, like the God that we see in the Bible, but Allah is not a covenant-keeping God, which leaves all Muslims just striving to do their best. Whereas we as Christians, each day that we live, having repented and placed our faith in Christ, we can live every day with 100% certainty of salvation. Muslims are left just hoping and striving to do their best. Muslims believe that Christians are also wrong about salvation being affected by grace through faith in Christ. Remember, salvation in Islam is very much about good works outweighing evil deeds. It's about trying rather than placing your faith in God. Heaven must be gained by keeping rules and regulations. And there is absolutely no way to know 100% for sure if you're going to heaven to a Muslim, except, of course, if you've been involved in jihad, which we saw was the holy war, martyrdom in jihad, or dying while coming back from Hajj. And if you remember, Hajj was that trip to Mecca that each Muslim is expected to make. Now, compare that to Christianity. God doesn't require us just to be good. We know that the Bible teaches that God requires perfection. But the Bible also teaches that none of us are able to be perfect. It says we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. We've all missed the mark. Therefore, we need, as Christians and, and Muslims as well, need the justifying grace of God as displayed in the atoning sacrifice of Christ. And of course, we understand that the only way to come to salvation, again, is by repenting of sin and placing our faith in Christ. So what is the Christian response? We understand that Muslims have these deeply flawed understanding of what 
um, biblical Christianity is. How should we respond to this? Well, first, we need to point out to a Muslim that the main problem facing humanity today is our hearts. Jeremiah 17:9 says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. If there's any problem facing the world today, it's our own hearts themselves. We need to keep on speaking to the Muslim person about sin and how Christ came in compassion to seek and to save that which was lost. Now, it's interesting. In the Bible, we have an example of a very religious person, Cornelius. I don't know if that rings a bell, but Cornelius in the Bible is perhaps similar to what a, a good Muslim person would consider themselves today. He had sincere religious beliefs and practices, but he was missing something, or rather, should I say, someone, and that was the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we're dealing with a Muslim person, we need to be careful to mention that our certainty of salvation is not a license to sin. And this is very important because one of the things that keeps a Muslim from believing in 100% assurance of salvation in most instances is that, <laughs> excuse me, he believes that, a Muslim will believe that if there was a way to know 100% for sure, then once you knew that, we would just have a license to sin. We could do whatever we want. Now, of course, we understand that the Bible doesn't teach that grace leads to sin, but rather grace motivates holiness. Our response to God's grace should be holiness itself. Now, also, when dealing with uh, a Muslim person, we want to explain that God is not a distant God. The Bible teaches that we can seek and find God. There are no rituals or ceremonies that are required to approach him. Rather, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. The Bible teaches that because of the sacrifice that God has made, or Christ has made on Calvary for us. Remember that God desires that father, son, and daughter relationship as opposed to the slave-master relationship we've seen in the past. Show that salvation to the Muslim person is more than just saying, I believe in God. Why? Because we understand that the Bible teaches that even the devils know who God is and they tremble. It's more than just saying, I believe in God. Now, why would that be important? Remember, Muslims teach that if you, if you say the Muslim creed and you believe that, you're instantly a Muslim. That's salvation to the Muslims. So you want to explain to them what true biblical salvation is. Moving on, because we have a lot to cover today, we understand that Muslims have a, a false understanding of the Trinity. We've talked a lot about their belief of the Trinity, so we won't park here too much, but you'll see in a moment why it's so important to, to understand what we're about to learn here. So as stated in our earlier lessons, Muslims believe that Christians are wrong about the triune nature of God. They believe in one God, and that's Allah. Now, of course, Christians observe that the Bible teaches a triune Godhead. We believe the Bible teaches that while God is one, he does exist in three distinct co-equal persons, which of course are God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The concept of the Trinity is something that's hard to understand, but I've heard a lot of people say this, and I think it's true. If we had a God 
that we could completely understand and grasp, how great of a God would that be? But rather, if we have a God that's um, unsearchable, inescapable, something that we can't truly comprehend, that just points to how great of a God that we serve. And I, I love that. I've heard a lot of people say that, and I think it's just absolutely amazing. So it's more of an aside, but praise the Lord that we serve a God like that. Now, back to what we're studying here. Muslims believe in only one true God. No, no separate persons, only one true God, and again, his name is Allah. But there is something interesting to consider, and I think this is worth pointing out. There is a Trinity-like figure within the Muslim community. Again, they don't consider it to be three persons, one God, but there is a, there is a, a Trinity that you'll find within the Muslim community, and that's this. You'll find God, Allah, Mary, his consort, of course, the mother of Jesus, and Jesus. Um, and you'll find this in Surah 5, 73 through 75, if you want to look into it yourself. And this comes from a tradition that before Muhammad claimed to be a prophet, he saw a statue of a venerated woman holding a baby, which led him to think that the Trinity um, was a polytheistic deity, namely God, Mary, and the Son. So there is this idea of a trinity within the Muslim community, but it's very much a distorted idea of what, of what the trinity actually is. Now, of course, the trinity that they believe is nothing like we believe, because in the Quran, the Lord Jesus was asked by Allah, their God, if he, have ever, if he ever claimed that he was the Son of God, and Jesus specifically denies the fact that he's the Son of God, in Surah 572. So if you were to look in the Quran, you see that Jesus himself specifically denies that he is the Son of God. Now, ordinary Muslims have often believed that Christians worship three gods. That's the main problem that they have, is we, they believe that we're worshiping three separate gods. Of course, we understand that we're not. And they're so vehemently against this idea that um, in one of their, one of the chapters in their, in their Bible, the Quran, Surah 11, 12, in verse 4, it's notable because it's one of the surahs that's recited every day by at least a, a billion Muslims, and in this surah, it emphasizes the unity of God and that he cannot, pers pers uh, he cannot possibly have a son. So every single day, a billion Muslims will recite a verse that says that there's only one God and that he can't possibly have a son. This idea of being against the Trinity is so built in to Islam that it's something that they ritualistically recite every day as a way to get to heaven. Now, what should our Christian response be having learned this? Well, we must consistently disown this misunderstanding of the true biblical Trinity. Explain that the term son of God refers to a spiritual sonship, not a physical or biological one. We could also explain just practically how God never fathered a son through Mary. Again, that's a misunderstanding that we'll have to explain. We could explain how God from all eternity existed in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, the same in substance or essence, and equal in power, glory, and eternal existence. Now, 
Here's one thing to note, and again, this is a reason why we're, we're parking a little bit here, is that the God-man, God and man together, is one of the biggest stumbling blocks for a Muslim to understand. But recognize this, but for a believer, the God-man is one of the most glorious mysteries in the Christian faith. The Trinity is a doctrine that Muslims must come to believe in by the acceptance of Bible revelation, not by rational speculation. So this isn't something that they're just going to be able to drum up in their mind and, and learn. It's something that the Bible is going to have to teach them. Now again, one may be considering, why is the doctrine so in, of the Trinity so important? Why are we even considering this again? Well, here's this. We know that without the doctrine of the Trinity, there would be no salvation. And that sounds like a bold, a bold statement, but follow me here. Because only the God-man, Christ, could offer a sufficient sacrifice to atone for sins for all men and women. The very fact that God himself had to come down to save us means that the doctrine of the Trinity is extremely important. This is truly one of the great differences between Islam and Christianity. The fact that God himself came down to seek and to save that which was lost. That includes us and that includes everyone in the Muslim community. Moving on for time's sake, we're going to consider what the Muslim person believes about Jesus Christ. And of course, this is probably, again, one of the most important things we're going to study. The Muslim believes that Christians are wrong about the divinity of Christ. Now, although the Quran emphatically denies the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ and curses all those who confess that he is, note that, it's interesting how Christ is um, presented as a very unique person in, in the Quran. The Quran attributes titles to Christ by which no other are described. For example, Christ is considered to be one of the major prophets of Islam. Jesus is mentioned 25 times in the Quran, and allusions to him are made over 93 times in, in the Quran. Get this, Jesus is mentioned more than their blessed prophet Muhammad in the, in the Quran. Be cautious, however, to remember that Isa, ISA, that's how, they, how Jesus is referred to in the Quran, is not the Jesus of the Bible. They use this word, Isa, referring to Jesus, but there are so many things that we see in the Quran that prove that this truly couldn't be the God of the Bible. But realize this. Muslims believe that they honor Christ more than Christians do. And you say, how could that be? Well, when you consider how Christ is presented in the Quran, they believe that they actually respect Christ more than a Christian does. Now, how could that be? Well, if you consider the characteristics that are given to Jesus in the Quran, you'll notice that there are characteristics that really are peculiar to God alone. In the Quran, we, we see that um, Christ was born to be a sign for all men. And I want you, as I'm explaining these, to see if the, any of them sound familiar. A sign to all men and an example to the children of Israel. Now note that Muslims will question why we make such a big deal 
out of Jesus' virgin birth, they wonder, they, obviously they know that Christians believe in the virgin birth. They wonder, why do we make such a big deal out of that? Because Adam was also formed without having a father or a mother. And so it's, it's just something to note that um, when we're talking about the virgin birth of Christ, a lot of them won't be very um, astounded by that um, because they don't believe that it's necessarily unique. However, there are some things that they do believe are unique to Christ. In the Quran, he's called the Holy Child. Christ is even called Muhammad's Lord. Muhammad, their prophet, calls Christ Lord in the Quran. He's the only sinless prophet. He's called the Word of God in the Quran. He's also referred to as the Ruah, or the Spirit of God. Which is interesting because Jesus in the Quran is referred to both as, as referred to both as the Word of God and the Spirit of God. He's the only one referenced as the Messiah. He's called the speech of truth, and he has the power to create and to raise from the dead. Boy, a lot of those things sound familiar. But again, this is not the Christ of the Bible that is taught in the Quran. Now, Muslims love to tell Christians that Jesus never said that he was God or the Son of God. They even say that there's not a single verse in the Bible that teaches that Jesus claims to be the Son of God. But rather, consider these passages. Jesus refers, actually, directly to himself as the Son of God throughout the Gospels. If you want to take a note, um, in Matthew 11, verses 25 through 27, and John 3, 16 through 18, Jesus specifically calls himself the Son of God. And Jesus also identified, identified himself as God in the flesh in John chapter number 9, verses 56 through 59. So a Muslim person will do all they can to try to to try to convince us that Jesus never said he was the Son of God, but rather the Bible teaches that clearly. Note that five times a day the Muslim will pray for peace upon Muhammad so that Allah will grant him permission into paradise. Now here's the question. If the leader of Islam, Muhammad, doesn't know where he's going, heaven or hell, what about his followers? Again, we saw that Muhammad had no assurance of salvation himself, so can the Muslim have assurance of salvation? No. Now, there's a lot of ways that a Christian could respond to these false ideas about Christ. We'll sum them up like this, though. Number one, we must teach each Muslim about Jesus Christ of the Bible. Again, their, their beliefs about Christ are all going to be formed by the Quran, perhaps a little bit of the Bible if they've read it, but their main understanding of Christ will be conformed by the Quran. So we must teach them who the true Christ of the Bible is. We need to teach Muslims about the Bible Christ, who is the Prince of Peace, the peace giver, that in him all fullness of the Godhead rests bodily, and that Christ is our peace and the only one who can grant true spiritual peace through salvation. That's the Christ that we need to teach the Muslim about. Now, perhaps even more importantly, Muslims believe that Christians are wrong about Christ's death on the cross. The crucifixion of Christ is a central issue of dispute between Christianity and Islam, 
and I would say it's, it's probably one of the most important. Islam has always been opposed to the atoning work of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary through the centuries and throughout the world. Islam, as a system of beliefs itself, is very much against the idea of an atoning sacrifice that can bring salvation. They're against it. Point by point, Islam denies the fundamentals of Christianity, but especially the cross, the very center of our faith, the Christian faith. Surah, again, one of their chapters, says specifically, but they, speaking of the Jews, killed him not, nor crucified him, but it was made to appear to them. So what is that surah or chapter in the Quran teaching? It's teaching that, sure enough, Christ was, was made uh, to be sacrificed, but he wasn't actually killed on the cross. He was just made to appear that way. Christ never actually died on the cross for anyone, according to the Quran. Listen to this. Tradition holds that Muhammad, again, the main prophet in Islam, would break anything with a cross that came, that was brought to his house. So Muhammad the prophet, if someone brought him something with a cross on it, he would destroy it because the main leader of Islam absolutely hated the idea of Christ on the cross. Here's why. They view the cross as a defeat. They view the cross as a defeat because one of their main, again, they have respect of Christ. Remember, we saw all those names they gave him, but he died. He wasn't powerful enough um, to, um, to live. He wasn't powerful enough to keep himself from going on the cross. What a difference to what Christianity teaches. We look to, we look to the cross as the greatest victory of all time. The fact that Christ died on the cross and all of our sins were paid for but rather the Muslim believes that the cross was one of the greatest defeats that's ever been made. Even though the Quran, um, forgive me, the Quran is blunt about the denial of Christ's death, there are verses that seem to indicate that he was killed and that he would be, would be resurrected. Um, so throughout the Quran, we do actually see inconsistencies about Christ and his death and his burial and his resurrection. So, of course, one logical person could ask, how could someone be resurrected if they were never dead in the first place? By tradition, listen to this, I found this very interesting. By tradition, Muslims believe that Christ will come and that he will die for people and that he will be buried next to Muhammad after he has slaughtered all the Christians who did not convert to Islam. The tradition teaches that Christ himself is going to come back and kill every one of the Christians who didn't convert to Islam. Then he will break every cross, every sign that signifies his sacrifice on the cross, and he will rule over Muslims. What a perversion of the Christ of the Bible. And again, that's why it's so important that we teach the Muslim person who the true Christ of the Bible is. So what's our Christian response? We should point to the Old Testament passages which predicted the suffering of the Messiah and also the passages in the New Testament where the Lord Jesus himself predicted his own death. Then we can point to the evidence of the Lord's death, particularly the testimony of the Gospels. 
And finally, at the end of the day, we understand that it will take the, the working of the Holy Spirit to convict the Muslim of these truths. We can, pre we can present all the evidence we want, but for someone to truly understand the sacrifice that the Bible Christ made on the cross, it's going to take the convicting of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to have to be patient with that. We're, we're going to talk about that next week. Patience is going to be one of the biggest players into seeing a Muslim person come to Christ. Moving on. Muslims believe that Christians are wrong about the scriptures. And again, this is not somewhere where we're going to park too long, but it's something that needs to be said. Um, a couple reminders. The Quran is believed by Muslims to have been dictated word by word in beautiful Arabic to Muslim by who? The angel Gabriel. The Quran is not a revelation to all humankind. Remember, we saw this. It can only be in Arabic, considered to be the language of heaven. It cannot be translated. Now, I didn't mention this the first time, but of course, we've been mentioning the surahs and how you can look that up. There is an English translation that has been made of the Quran, so you can study it. But again, a Muslim believes that it, it should not and cannot be translated into any other language. And the Quran declares that the Bible, both the Old and the New Testaments, however, are from God, which is interesting. The Bible is called the book, the book, more than 20 times. The Bible is also called the proof, and even the Quran says a light, an admonition, and a guide to man, is what the, is what the Quran teaches about the Bible. However, please take a note of this. Muslims will not be inclined to listen to our use of the Bible because they believe that the Bible we now possess is not as it was during the time of Muhammad. So again, a Muslim person is not going to be chomping at the bit to have you read to them the Bible because of this very reason alone. They believe that the Bible has been changed and certain truths have been eliminated while others have been added. Muslims have been attacking the Bible since the 11th century and still do today. So remember, when you're going to be using the Bible, of course we're going to use the Bible when we're, when we're um, giving the gospel because of the very words of God are what's going to pierce the heart. But, again, just keep in mind, Muslims aren't going to be inclined to hear those words when you begin. Now, what should our Christian response be to, this, to these false ideas about the scriptures? Well, there's a difference between making an, making an accusation and providing evidence for it. We must gently challenge them to demonstrate exactly when, by whom, where, and why the Bible was corrupted. Again, the main issue is that they believe that the Bible we have today is corrupted. We can ask these questions. Was it before or after the arrival of the Quran in the 7th century that the Bible was corrupted? What are the historical sources or textual evidence for this allegation? Who is thought to have made these, these changes? Again, these questions may sound a little deep, but we're trying to, to help the Muslim understand that perhaps their assumptions about the Bible that we have today are not exactly the case. And we'll see that as one seeks, if the Muslim does take your challenge, and if he does begin to look into those questions, it becomes clear that the accusations of Islam are not connected with any known time or place. 
They are unfounded and mythical. If you actually look into what the assumptions that a Muslim makes about the Bible, they're simply not the case. And if someone were to actually, if a Muslim person were to actually look into it, they'll find that they're unfounded and perhaps, perhaps they would be more inclined to hear what the Bible says. Now, before we move on, I did want to mention this. Some facts about the Quran. If Muslims judge the Quran using the same criteria that they use to judge the Bible, they would quickly be disenchanted. Listen to these real quick. The manuscripts of the Bible are very much as old or, or older than the Quran. Nine important language versions of the Bible were available before the Quran. Listen to this. Many Muslims have never read or even touched a Quran. They simply believe with their imam, or we, we've never actually used that term before, but an imam is the leader of the mosque, teaches. Many Muslims have never even touched a Quran. The Quran itself affirms that the Bible is the word of God. Remember, the Quran itself teaches that the Bible is the word of God. Muslims believe that the Quran fulfilled and confirmed the Bible. And Muslims are commanded in numerous passages to read and learn from the Bible. And we'll see that specifically later on. But the, the Quran literally teaches the Muslim person to study and learn from the Bible. What a great pathway into, into leading someone to Christ. Now, before we move on from this, I wanted to read you a section from what the Quran states. The Quran states, recite, O Muhammad, that what has been revealed to you of the book, that's referring to the Bible, and establish prayer. Indeed, prayer prohibits immorality and wrongdoing, and the remembrance of Allah is greater. And Allah knows that which you do. And do not argue with the people of the scriptures, except in a way that is best, except for those who commit injustice among them. Isn't that interesting? The Quran teaches not only for Muhammad to study the scripture, but to not argue with the people of the scriptures. Moving on, for time's sake, a question we can consider. Muhammad, is he the promised comforter? To uphold the, validity, to uphold the validity of Muhammad's teaching, Muslims try to use every possible argument to convince others that Muhammad is mentioned in the Bible and that he is the, the comforter that's promised. They argue that hallelujah actually doesn't mean praise to God, but rather praise to Allah. And I, amen means, um, means praise again to Muhammad. If it is not there, they insist that the Bible must have corrupted it and that it can no longer be trusted. Muslims believe that Muhammad is the promised comforter but the question is, is that possible? Could Muhammad actually be the promised comforter? Well, the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches that that promised comforter is the spirit of truth, that he'll abide with believers forever, that he's known to us and dwells with us and is in us. He'll remind us of the, he'll remind the believers of the words of Christ, and he'll never speak of himself, but will glorify God. I would say in that case, it is therefore impossible for Muhammad to be the comforter, but rather we understand the promised comforter 
as the Holy Spirit, who is God himself. Now again, should we respond rashly to this? No. The Christian response is this. We should never rush to answer questions about Muhammad's status, just as we should never attack the person of Muhammad. And we'll see in our next lesson how important it is to not attack what Muslims believe about Muhammad. Rather, it is always better to reply that our opinion about Muhammad, get this, our opinion about Muhammad does not matter and that our message is about gospel, about the gospel, and about Christ. When we're talking to a Muslim person about Muhammad, we could argue back and forth all day long. We have to keep in mind that the gospel is the main center of our conversation and that our belief or their belief about Muhammad at the end of the day doesn't affect the salvation of that person. We can also let the word of God speak for itself as it gives a perfect answer to this in Acts 10.43, which says, again, that's Acts 10.43, to him give all the prophets witness that through his name, whoso believeth in him shall receive remission of sins. Again, that was Acts 10.43. Note that to a Muslim, it's extremely dangerous for a non-Muslim to speak a word against Muhammad. It is bound to generate outraged anger and violence and is punishable by death. Now, again, that's in the Muslim community, but if a Muslim person speaks a word against Muhammad, it can even be punishable by death. When speaking to a Muslim, try to keep the focus, again, on the gospel and on Christ, because that's the only thing that can truly save them. Our last point is the, is the Muslim's belief of Allah. And again, this is something that we've already considered, and so we'll go through it quickly. We have already come to the conclusion multiple times that throughout our lessons that the God of the Muslim community is not the God of the Bible. When we compare the Bible and the Quran, we will soon realize that they do not speak about the same God. Now, we've understood that. We won't go too much into it, but I wanted us to consider what the Christian response to this truth is. Well, we must teach the Muslim about the one true God of the Bible. They don't have an understanding about who the true God is, and so we need to teach them that God the Son came in the flesh, and he delights in personal fellowship with his children. He's our shepherd, he's our Lord, and perhaps most importantly, he's our Savior. Our God is three persons in one God. The God of the Bible is a personal God. He's not distant, and he's not unapproachable. Again, each Muslim person can come before the throne of our God of the Bible and be saved. God is consistent in all times, and perhaps most importantly, the God of the Bible is the one who made the way of salvation possible through simple repentance of sin and faith alone in Christ and his very real sacrifice on the cross. Muslims have a distorted idea of who the true God is, and we must teach them through the Bible what the actual God is. Understanding what Muslims believe about Christianity helps us to understand what our Muslim neighbors think and believe. Equipped with this knowledge, next week we will consider practically how each of us can help a Muslim person come to Christ. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity uh, to continue to study your word and this idea of what Muslims believe about Christianity. Lord, again, our hope and our prayer is that we'll be able to use this knowledge to bring even just one Muslim person to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.